You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. A memorial to Dwight Eisenhower will be dedicated on September 17, 2020. In the heart of Washington, D.C., just south of the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, the Eisenhower Memorial will remind visitors to the nation's capital of the life and accomplishments of the five-star general and 34th president of the United States, a figure who left a mark on the 20th century like few others. The dedication was originally planned for May 8th, the 75th anniversary of the victory over Nazi Germany, but the COVID-19 pandemic forced its rescheduling. Another reminder of the national challenge we are living through now, even as we remember the sacrifices and triumphs that marked Eisenhower's leadership. Germany was a part of Dwight Eisenhower's life from his earliest days. His family descended from German immigrants and lived in a tight-knit, pious community in Kansas. As Supreme Commander of Allied Forces in Europe during World War II, as the first Supreme Commander of NATO forces, and as President, Germany was central in his thinking and his accomplishments. We're very proud at AICGS to have as one of our trustees, Susan Eisenhower, noted strategist and policy analyst and granddaughter of Dwight Eisenhower. She's the author of a new book, How Ike Led, which assesses the formation of his character and how he demonstrated his core principles through his leadership in war, in dealing with a conquered Germany, and in leading the United States for eight years as president. I was delighted to have the opportunity to talk with Susan Eisenhower about her book, about Ike's views toward Germany, and about his lasting legacy in American politics and the transatlantic relationship. Here's our conversation. Susan Eisenhower, it's so good to have you with us today. Uh, and uh, if I could just start off uh, by asking, um, why'd you decide to write this book? Was there a gap that you wanted to fill? Um, what, what was it that drove you? Well, there are a couple of things that drove me. First of all, the end of World War II, the anniversary, the 75th, um, is uh, occurring during this period. Um, also, the Eisenhower Memorial is going to be dedicated on September 17th. That was a big factor. But then, you know, to be perfectly honest about this, I, I have a group of students, uh, and my seminar is Strategy and Leadership in Transformational Times. And I wanted them to know that things weren't always the way they are now, uh, and that there was a different way of looking at leadership, a different way of looking at the responsibilities of a general or a president. And I was motivated to try and interest them in somebody who uh, would soon be uh, a feature of the Washington Mall. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, I, I walked past the site of the Eisenhower Memorial just a few days ago. It's not fully illuminated yet, but it seems to be, uh, you know, completed. So uh, I think uh, I and so many other people are looking forward to the opening of that memorial in just a few days. And, uh, and, and so uh, thanks for uh, you know, pointing that out. And we will link to that on our uh, show notes uh, so that people can, uh, can follow that as well. Uh, I want to start by talking a little bit about some decisions that your grandfather, uh, then General Eisenhower, before his presidency, uh, some decisions that he made at the very end of World War II that I think were uh, were so important. And so maybe you can help us, Susan, get started by um, talking about the the scene in a place called Ordruf. 
um, uh, what, what was Ordruf and why, why did that come out, strike you as significant? Ordruf was the second stop on a, an important day. Uh, the uh, war was beginning to come to an end, so in the morning, um, Supreme Allied Commander Dwight Eisenhower and General Patton and General Bradley went down into the salt mines to see where uh, the Nazis had spirited uh, artwork and uh, enormous amounts of money into, into the billions of uh, dollars in uh, contemporary terms. Uh, and that was already uh, a surprise. But then in the afternoon, uh, it was in uh, Patton's uh, area of responsibility. Uh, they had gotten reports about Ordruf uh, and other camps that were being discovered along the way. And uh, the three of these generals went to uh, that subcamp of Buchenwald. And Eisenhower was, um, first of all, apparently driving into uh, the facility there, if you want to call it that, uh, the, the smell of rotting human flesh was completely overwhelming. And they got into uh, the confines of Ordruf itself and, and were completely stunned by what they saw. There were, because if I can interrupt you, Susan, this was yes. the first. This was the first um, uh, U.S. liberation of a concentration camp or a part of the concentration camp machinery. If I if I understood it correctly. Well, yes, and the uh, people at uh, different echelons in the army had gotten there first, and then sent message back, um, and then these three generals uh, went to uh, take a look at uh, this subcamp, as I said, and you know, they were completely unprepared for what they saw. There'd been rumors that these uh, camps existed, but certainly from Eisenhower's perspective, he couldn't imagine uh, how, how overwhelming uh, it was as an experience and how shocking um, the facility was, even though the Germans had had some time to cover their tracks and to anticipate a visit of this kind. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I want to read a, uh, a short passage from the book, and this is a, uh, a cable that uh, General Eisenhower sent back to the Army Chief of Staff, George Marshall, uh, shortly after his visit to, to Ordruf. Um, and this is uh, an excerpt of what he wrote. The things I saw there beggar description. While I was touring the camp, I encountered three men who had been inmates and by one ruse or another had made their escape. I interviewed them through an interpreter. The visual evidence and the verbal testimony of starvation, cruelty, and bestiality were so overpowering as to leave me a bit sick. In one room where they were piled up, there were 20 or 30 naked men killed by starvation. George Patton would not even enter. He said he would get sick if he did so. I made the visit deliberately in order to be in a position to give firsthand evidence of these things if ever in the future there develops a tendency to charge these allegations merely to propaganda. Now, I read that long passage because it's stunning in, in several ways. It, it, on the one hand, it's the first, you know, senior level, first-hand encounter with the Holocaust. I think also, just as an aside, uh, the way Eisenhower writes, uh, it's, it's uh, economical but powerful language. Um, but what I think was most important is his, his statement that he needed to be there and in a way document this so that it couldn't be dismissed as propaganda in the future. So, so could, let's talk a little bit about what he did afterwards in order to realize that, uh, that desire. 
Well, I think the most important thing is he goes on, he sends Marshall a number of communiques on this very subject, but he is really asking for General Marshall's assistance in identifying leading Americans, including journalists, members of Congress, to actually come to Germany to bear witness to this. He wanted uh, as many photographs taken as possible. And he also ordered that all troops who were not at the front line or anywhere in the vicinity uh, go and bear witness to this as well. You know, Jeff, you might be interested to know that my father had just uh, graduated from West Point on D-Day, coincidentally, um, and was um, dispatched to, to Europe. And he was with a unit that was ordered to go to Buchenwald. And he took, um, he was an amateur photographer and took many, many pictures of this uh, that are still in family hands. I mean, they are horrendous, these pictures. And I can tell you that my own grandfather was so shaken um, by what he saw at Ordruf uh, that this was a subject of a lot of conversation in family circles, you know, even into the last years of my father's life. Um, and I think Ike was just shaken to his roots. He couldn't imagine um, that people would do this to somebody else um, and that uh, the methods that they used were um, so diabolical. As a matter of fact, in Crusade in Europe, he says he sim simply couldn't find uh, an, uh, the right words in the English language to, des to describe the emotions he felt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his efforts to reach out to American and British leaders. He also, I think, if I remember correctly, he sent photographs, maybe even some of your father's photographs, to Churchill. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but he, he also made sure that Germans were not in a position to deny um, what had happened uh, in places like Ordruf and Buchenwald and elsewhere where Americans liberated camps. Well, in, in one extraordinary scene, uh, Eisenhower orders that uh, the local townspeople be marched into those camps to see what had happened there. And I guess the smell was so overpowering, it was sort of impossible uh, to say and act like they didn't know something was very, very wrong in, in the neighboring hamlets around these places. Uh, that was one thing. Also, I did not realize until I did the research um, in an important press conference he gave uh, in June after the war, uh, that they had actually made uh, some army films of the Holocaust and put, uh, you know, many people uh, living in Germany in front of these films so that they fully understood what had happened. And, and what, uh, you know, the, the, when I try to connect this to the present day, of course, Germany has, over the last 75 years, developed a really remarkable, you know, what people refer to as a memory culture. Um, it is a, a conscious effort to understand uh, the past, you can never make amends for that history, but to understand and to act um, uh, in a way that ensures you know, that never again uh, is not just a mantra, that it is reality. And, and I think you, can, you really can trace this back uh, to Eisenhower's decision within mere hours of visiting Ordruf um, to ensure that, uh, that this kind of memory culture um, would have a fertile soil. Um, so I think that is really, you know, his instinctive judgment uh, and his firm position uh, on this uh, really set uh, a course that we are still, uh, we're still following. And certainly for those of us who, who study Germany 
um, that where you see how much of an impact that still has on the way Germany looks at its, its role in the world, at its history, um, and its responsibility. Well, Jeff, if I could just add here, one of the reasons I also wrote the book is I got the idea to write this entire book actually at a dinner at the Holocaust Museum. And someone had gotten up and given a really remarkable speech about Eisenhower's visit to Ordorf. And while I was um, you know, out in the lobby, uh, I went into the ladies room and got out. In those days, it was a Blackberry. And I wrote some notes on my Blackberry saying, you know, what he did after seeing the atrocities at Ordorf and uh, worrying about the propaganda value 50 years later, he didn't have to do that. It was not actually part of his job description or within his, um, the, the requirements of his job. And I thought, now this is especially interesting to me because he was of German origin. I mean, we would have perhaps some people today uh, who feel so strongly about their homeland that they might have just wanted to have forgotten it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wrote that down and then I started making a list of all of the other uh, things he felt deeply about and, and the people he felt closely to who he held to a very high standard. Um, and that's really the origins of this book, strangely enough. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, uh, and, and speaking of origins, I think this is a perfect transition um, because as you noted, um, you know, uh, Eisenhower was a person of, of, of uh, convictions and principles. Um, he was also someone of German origin uh, and, and his family roots, although he was raised in Kansas, his family was uh, uh, from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania uh, originally. Um, and I think it's probably fair to say that the background, the religious background of that community, you could probably say they were radical pietists. Um, so how did that help shape um, Eisenhower as a, as a young man, or did it? Oh, I think it, I, it certainly uh, shaped his uh, upbringing. As a matter of fact, uh, the River Brethren, uh, that was the sect his uh, parents were associated with, uh, were, I think they're offshoot of the Mennonite religion, which is very common in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, Ike was not just... Uh, uh, of German origin. He was uh, probably of 100% German origin. Uh, uh, German was spoken in that community, uh, even um, as uh, Ike, as a young boy, noted. Uh, there were a lot of uh, German settlers in the state of Kansas and uh, a lot of German food and, and uh, you know, certainly the uh, rather larger parts of that uh, culture uh, were part of what he grew up with. Uh, Ike's own father uh, decided that his sons ought to learn English um, mm -hmm. and to uh, insist upon that. But you can imagine how much more um, striking and disturbing it was to see that uh, not only uh, were the Germans refusing to capitulate here after all of the destruction and damage that had been caused by this war, but that they had so uh, they'd gone so far beyond what anybody could imagine of a civilized people uh, that I, I speculate in this book that he must have had a lot he had to reconcile uh, as, as far as his own thinking was concerned. Um, you know, one thing that uh, I found interesting, you know, the river, the river brethren, brethren, they were, they were pacifists, um, mm -hmm. if I understand correctly. 
Um, but that didn't stop uh, Dwight Eisenhower from going to West Point and pursuing a career as, uh, as a military officer. Well, that's interesting. Uh, part of uh, <laughs> the one, uh, there are a number of things that Ulysses S. Grant and Dwight Eisenhower have in common, and probably the most striking is that both of them went to West Point for a free education. I'm not sure Dwight Eisenhower actually ever really expected to become a soldier, though he was completely obsessed by history and was a great um, student of history. Uh, but he went to, to West Point because he'd put his older brother through college, and he was a, a little worried that his younger brothers wouldn't get there soon enough to get him through college. So a pal of um, his suggested that Ike apply to the Naval Academy, and, and he was too old to get into the Naval Academy, and it was West Point that took an older student like this, who's probably two or three years older than his own class. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, history is always put together with a daisy chain of accidents, but you know, <laughs> that would be one of them. Yeah. And, and you, you mentioned, you know, the way that uh, German heritage uh, might have, uh, you know, been in his mind as he was prosecuting the war against Nazi Germany uh, in Europe. Um, I, I, was, I was struck in reading the book, uh, you know, that it didn't come through if he, was, if he felt conflicted. It didn't come through in his conduct of the war. Um, uh, in fact, he went uh, out of his way to make sure that his officers um, uh, did not uh, dine with captive uh, German, uh, German officers, for example. Um, that uh, this was, uh, you know, deadly serious business for him and uh, not subject to any kind of, you know, um, uh, nostalgic or other kinship sentiments. Well, I, th I think that's right. And first of all, we have to remember that the Eisenhowers came to uh, the United, well, it wasn't even the United States in 1741. So this is even before the United States of America as a country. Um, and even though they settled in a small Germanic group and stayed together as a group, I think there's no question that Eisenhower felt 100% uh, American in every way. And this is yeah. one of the, the great um, um, strengths of the United States that, that, uh, that we've all been able to overlook our ethnic kinship. Um, having said that, uh, there was enough in, in the German culture that uh, I could identify with in some way or the other. And so it was a touchstone that must have created some curiosity in his own mind about how the people, the stock he came from could be capable of such atrocities. But still, even uh, after the war, I was hearing about my uh, German ancestors and, uh, you know, as a kid, and uh, we had a lot of sauerkraut <laughs> with meals and, you know, things yeah. like that. But uh, he, there was no uh, conflict in his mind, I don't believe right. for a minute. When he went to West Point, he said that uh, an extraordinary feeling came over him when he pledged to uh, defend the Constitution of the United States, and that he understood that this was the higher mission that he would be working towards. Right. And, you know, as you say, his, his ancestors came to the United States in the 18th century, before Germany was even a country um, right. a map. So, um, uh, obviously, a, a significant factor, too. Um, so, I want to switch to Germany during Eisenhower's presidency. We've been talking about uh, him as a, as a general, but uh, it's, it's really, I think, as, as president that you, you see um, the, the scope of his vision um, for Europe and for international relations. And, and a lot of that has to do with Germany, it seems to me. Uh, so, 
Susan, how how important was Germany in Europe and for Eisenhower in his presidency? Well, as we we all remember, Germany was absolutely pivotal in Europe after the war. First of all, it was a ruined economy and a ruined country, and you know it required a lot of energy. Um, uh, emotional and physical and financial and everything else to um, address the aftermath of the war. But I think Eisenhower's um, um, feelings about the centrality of, of Germany and about American global leadership uh, comes after the war in a very telling way. Uh, after World War II, he was on everybody's list to run for president. He had Democrats coming. He had Republicans. Then he had the Democrats again. Then he had the Republicans. They kept, <laughs> and at one point, he had both Democrats and Republicans. And everybody was being driven half mad because he wouldn't say which party he was a member of. Um, and there's some rather hilarious stories about that, I can say. But the, the, what finally persuaded Eisenhower, uh, I believe, and certainly the um, first-hand accounts back this up, is that the Republican Party had been out of power for 20 years. And Eisenhower was very concerned about, A, the two-party system in our country uh, and keeping that alive. But secondly, the GOP was, was dominated by isolationists after World War II. And Eisenhower understood that probably one of the mistakes that brought um, the world to the cataclysm uh, in the late 30s was the fact that the United States had, had retreated after World War I and had, had, had really sort of declined to take the level of responsibility that might have made a difference between the wars. We had virtually um, a bare bones uh, military between the wars and Ike decided he'd have to, if, if the GOP was going to adopt an isolationist view and had any chance of winning, which they did because Truman's uh, approval rating was low, that we could be starting this whole drama all over again. Um, and that's when he decides to run for president, when he realizes that despite everything, um, the GOP was going to remain isolationist. Um, and so I think fundamental, the reason I tell that story is that the catastrophe World War II was so overpowering, so deeply felt by him that he did everything he could for the rest of his life to make sure we never had anything like that happen again. And central to that is Germany. Mm -hmm. Central to that is Germany. And it's also then becomes the crossroads um, uh, or the uh, flashpoint in the Cold War. I, I want to I quote another uh, passage uh, from, from your book. Uh, and this is, um, uh, goes back to 1945. Um, at a meeting not long after the surrender, Eisenhower had told his staff, quote, the success of this occupation of Germany can only be judged 50 years from now. If the Germans at that time have a stable, prosperous democracy, then we shall have succeeded. So I think the record looks pretty good, um, but there were some very difficult decisions to get through. Uh, 1953, the, uh, the um, uh, the rebellion against uh, rule in East Germany, um, mm -hmm. East Berlin, which was put down uh, by the Soviet Union. Um, the decision in 1954, um, the failure that is of the uh, European defense community, which ultimately led to Eisenhower's decision to bring West Germany into NATO. 
uh, which was not a popular uh, decision among all of the Western allies at that time. That's right. And uh, it's really interesting that the accession documents, I guess, were, uh, when I say I guess, um, I'm sure there were a series of documents, so I want to be clear on that, uh, were signed uh, on the date of the surrender uh, of uh, uh, Nazi power in 1945, so it's 1955, uh, in May of 1955, exactly. How symbolic was that? And um, yes. very striking. And, but, and, and if, I could, if I could chime in there, there's one of the, the other thing that, um, that strikes me about this is uh, on the one hand, um, Eisenhower, for reasons of compelling military logic, um, if you're going to defend Western Europe against the Soviet Union, you want to have, um, Germany, or at least West Germany, uh, as part of your, of your forces. Um, so you could say that perhaps the military logic was trumping the politics, but I think more deeply, um, you see that Eisenhower's first instinct uh, you know, in the years before that was to encourage European unity, um, uh, and that the United States would be uh, supporting European unity, um, but that, it, that would serve two purposes. One, would help to overcome the divisions in Europe, uh, and two, it would minimize the burdens on the United States um, to, to take um, complete responsibility for, for all security uh, uh, on the European continent. Well, that's right. So um, it, it didn't turn out exactly that way. And it's uh, interesting of uh, the myriad of reasons why uh, that was the case. Um, but certainly he was always um, in support of um, European progress. In, in unity and moving forward um, as, a, um, uh, as a, group of, a group of countries. Uh, we're still having many of these debates today. How much should we still be involved in European politics from both a um, military and a political point of view? And uh, I, I think that they, uh, they being everybody at the time, you know, had uh, conflicting views of what the vision would look like uh, after the war. In any case, I think it was a very uh, bright idea to bring uh, Germany, West Germany into NATO because it, it provided a different vision. It was, um, it was a vision that uh, the rest of Germany could aspire to at some point. Um, in any case, um, it also put uh, Berlin, where the, the, you know, the dividing line was, at least in that city, um, it, it sent a strong message to the Soviets. And then as the Soviet Union um, later begins to react to the four power structure uh, in Berlin, uh, Eisenhower's got uh, a foothold there. Um, because uh, Germany's part of NATO and he can, he can defend the, the city of Berlin. Um, that whole problem became very contentious, and frankly, Jeff, one of the things that interested me most about the book um, was several sources I found, including his own source, that he had advised uh, Franklin Roosevelt against um, a four-power governing system that was based on nationality as opposed to um, a, a mixed operation, you see, because he was afraid that after the war, um, nationalist sentiments or just simply the difference of um, various countries and, the and their interests uh, would bring about the kind of tension that later became uh, troublesome uh, over Berlin, you know, after the war into the 50s and into the 60s. Yeah. 
Um, well, you know, the, 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 other, the other thing that I, I found fascinating um, about your book uh, is the, the sections where you describe and, and analyze Eisenhower's approach to governing. Um, you know, running a civilian government is a very different enterprise than a military organization. Um, but it seems to me that he brought a number of, of really crucial insights. Um, first, um, he was not at all impulsive. Um, he was somebody who waited to act, uh, I think as you put it, until, until the very last necessary moment. Um, uh, and, and also, he was very uh, worried about simplistic views um, that he saw in American politics. Um, and, and so you, you describe, and I'd, I'd, I'd love if you could talk a little bit about this so-called uh, solarium project, because um, uh, I think it exemplifies this so well. It, it, tell us a little bit about, this, about the solarium project. Well, the solarium project, and if this sounds familiar to listeners, it's because we're beginning to use that term now for uh, a certain kind of methodology. I don't know if you're aware of the fact up on Capitol Hill, they had a solarium project on cybersecurity. And it wasn't organized exactly in the same way, but this is uh, taken on a meeting uh, a meaning that relates to finding a grand strategy for a problem. In in this particular case, uh, by the way, solarium relates to the informal solarium on the third floor of the White House, um, and is a very casual area. And this is where the idea was hatched to to do this. But let's remember that Joseph Stalin died in March of 1953. Um, and there were already deep divisions, uh, not only in the um, professional cadres within the State Department and the Defense Department about what our policy should be, uh, but even within the Eisenhower administration, there were differing views about uh, what kind of approach we should take to the Soviet Union during this period. Um, and furthermore, uh, what we should be thinking about in terms of our military posture, given the advent of nuclear weapons especially the hydrogen bomb. So uh, to the, the, the beauty of the Solarium Project is that um, it enabled the president to hear everybody out, to have a mechanism where everybody could, um, that these three teams he assembled could argue their case, uh, cases. And then the, you know, he was in effect getting their buy-in and settling certain things once and for all. And 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 giving responsibility for uh, you know to cabinet members to to present these arguments. You know this they, this wasn't something they were you know uh, delegating to to some junior uh, staffers to write them papers or. or well, that's right. And 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 you have these three teams, and they um, they present their best cases. Um, and I really like that kind of. Um, uh, leadership management. He liked to be surrounded by people who had different views than he did. And the reason he liked that is that he thought there was a real danger in having your assumptions reinforced by others. He wanted pushback and he wanted a lot of pushback. Um, and then when he made a decision based on uh, differing viewpoints, which was um, memorialized actually in the solarium process, then he would make a decision and it would be clear. Uh, and he had people on his staff whose jobs were to implement the president's decisions. Um, so that's what happened with Solarium. There were three different approaches that were argued. One of them was taken off the table right away and that was rollback. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that we were going to attempt to roll back 
the gains of the Soviet Union after uh, the war. Um, the other two uh, ideas were argued strenuously, but Eisenhower there decides, based on what he'd heard, that, that he would adopt a hybrid policy, uh, which means that he was also open to other ideas. And uh, this is when you get a multi-layered strategy for addressing the Soviet Union that includes everything from Voice of America to um, you know, many other um, initiatives designed to um, uh, contain the Soviet Union while making inroads into a dialogue with uh, the people uh, behind the Iron Curtain. Right, right. Um, setting the stage for diplomacy that would uh, you know, uh, persist for decades uh, thereafter. I think you know one of the inherent assumptions there is also something that we sometimes forget uh, uh, today, and that is that even a superpower faces limits. Um, and so there is a need to uh, for a strategic focus um, and to set priorities uh, in the acknowledgement that you can't achieve everything. Um, and and so you need to connect your priorities to the actions. Uh, that you're going to take, and I think Solarium is uh, is a great is a great example uh, of that. Uh, you know, rollback is the sort of thing that sounds it's it's emotionally satisfying, right? Um, and I think you could maybe draw some connections to policies today that seem emotionally satisfying because they they are based in a in a deep dissatisfaction with certain certain ways that the uh, certain things about the way the world is, um, and you wish it weren't that way. But that doesn't mean you can change everything. Well, Jeff, if I had any influence over the um, strategy and leadership field, I would introduce a new idea, which would be called what I would call a sustainable strategy. The, we've just said in our earlier discussion that uh, Ike was thinking for over the longer haul. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was always looking for sustainable strategies, things that, as you say, weren't impulsive and didn't have to be recalibrated literally every time somebody was elected uh, president. And so I would say that um, setting up that long-term strategy for the Soviet Union, it took a long time. He knew it would, but it bore fruit and, and um, was remarkably free of bloodshed when you think what was at stake. Yeah, um, that's absolutely right. It, it, you know, when I, when I think about um, other ways that um, uh, Eisenhower's analysis of his own time uh, still resonate today. Uh, one of the things that struck me in, in your book, Susan, is the way that he looked at the problem of polarization. Um, and I'm going to read another passage, if, uh, if, you, if you don't mind. Uh, it's uh, from, from, the end, uh, from the end of chapter, uh, chapter six. Um, Eisenhower fervently believed, quote, the aggressive demands of various groups and special interests, callous or selfish, or even well-intentioned, contradicted that American tradition that no part of our country should prosper except as the whole of America prospered. Unless there were changes, I felt that eventually only the promises of the extreme right and the extreme left would be heard in public places. How poignant that is today. Uh, it really is. And, you know, the other thing is that he thought that our deep divisions were a national security issue. I've been trying to make that point here recently because it provides, um, let's see, what was the phrase he used? He, he, um, uh, observing these divisions from abroad would be, quote, um, a welcome sight to an alert enemy. 
Um, so we, we complain a lot, and rightly so, that we have countries, and it's not just Russia, but we've got countries uh, you know, determined to um, exploit our divisions, but we're sending them the roadmap. Uh, you know, we yeah. need to spend a lot more time figuring out where our common ground is in this country and building on that or what I would call the middle way. You know, and, and this connects back to something you mentioned earlier, uh, which, when you were talking about the, the, the state of the Republican Party in the late 40s and early 50s, when Eisenhower decided to become a candidate for president. You know, he, he conducted in a way, maybe not a hostile takeover, but a friendly <laughs> takeover of the Republican Party's view of, uh, of international relations, you know, because his, his main, um, uh, let's say, opponent uh, intellectually and politically was Robert Taft, who had a very different view of things like NATO. He had voted against uh, ratifying the North Atlantic Treaty. Uh, he had, maybe he wouldn't consider himself an isolationist per se, but certainly uh, much more so than Eisenhower was and very much a nationalist view of of things. Um, and maybe he even had the majority of the Republican Party with him on that. Um, but the, 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 the charismatic uh, uh, and the persuasive force of Eisenhower won out. Um, uh, and things took a very different turn than they might have. Well, I think the most remarkable um, turn that it took is that by the end of the Eisenhower presidency, you really have a uh, bipartisan consensus on America's role in the world. And, and that was not easy. As a matter of fact, the thing a lot of people don't realize is that in Ike's first term especially, he had a lot of problems with his own party. Uh, as a matter of fact, he was frequently calling on Democrats to help him with the votes up on Capitol Hill, um, mm -hmm. especially around um, some really wild proposals that were um, offered by the GOP um, uh, the most famous being the Bricker Amendment that would have literally tied the hands of the President of the United States to even settle a um, status of forces agreement. Uh, and uh, so Ike had to call on uh, the Democrats up on Capitol Hill. Then rather interestingly, in the second term, his problems rest more with the Democrats than the Republicans. But still, um, for six years, the uh, House and the Senate I was in Democratic hands, and, and he still got 80% of his legislative agenda through Congress. Mm -hmm. And this is because this is built on what he called the middle way, as I, as I noted. And also, a kind of personal leadership style, I think, made a big difference, too. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you to put yourself in, uh, in, in your grandfather's shoes for a second, if, if you'd be willing to offer. I mean, how do you think uh, Dwight Eisenhower would look at American politics? Uh, today, and more importantly, what do you think he would recommend that uh, one does about it? Ah, well, this is this is an excellent question. Well, first of all, I can't imagine he'd be anything other than beside himself. Um, he he might be uh, bewildered and deeply saddened, but you know, never one to be passive about emotions. He would be already cooking up a plan. I think. I think the thing that would shock him most is the way Americans talk to each other. And this is, um, I don't know whether the infection came from the top downwards or from the um, grassroots upwards, uh, but it, it doesn't matter. I firmly believe that if you insult even your opponents, or if you um, uh, look to personalities, end quotes, um, uh, in a pejorative way, that you would um, instill in others a desire to get even, 
um, and a desire to um, uh, to be uncooperative. Uh, and so he managed, even during the worst of the McCarthy period, he managed never to mention Senator McCarthy's name, and that upset a lot of people. But he said, why? Uh, turn McCarthy into a media star? No, no, we'll, we'll handle this behind the scenes, which he did quite deftly, actually. So the idea that people talk to each other in a way that, that could not possibly foster cooperation on any level um, is something we have to address. And it's very satisfying to get up and publicly blow off steam. But frankly speaking, there's nothing productive about it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's where he'd start because he always believed in starting with yourself. And uh, I got these lectures a lot as we all did <laughs> as kids about, uh, I, I once, I, I tell in the book about how um, his horses that I managed at the farm uh, managed to uh, break out and run all over the, uh, the lawn while he was out on the porch watching this and eventually took a big sweep and plowed up his uh, putting green. Um, so I was in trouble. And I think um, the only reason I got a reasonable response from him, it was a very nice response. In fact, he remarked on how wonderful the horses looked and how I'd never seen them horses run like that since he'd been a kid in Abilene, Kansas. But I had the great good sense to take full responsibility in front of him yeah. and to um, make sure that he knew I understood how thoroughly guilty I was about the whole thing. <laughs> and uh, that, uh, that brought a kind of understanding and appreciation. But boy, I'll tell you, it was always, and what have you done in these circumstances? And before you go, throwing blame elsewhere, you know, where are your responsibilities? And can you imagine today, everybody just blames everybody else. And I think he would be beside himself about that. Mm -hmm. um, he, he gained uh, an important lesson from West Point for the first year, you know, for the plebes who enter West Point. There are only four answers to a question and one of them is no excuses, sir. Yeah, yeah, well. This is a terrific book. Um, I really enjoyed reading it, uh, Susan. Oh, and you. so I wanna thank you um, for, uh, for this very timely uh, contribution. Um, you know, th there have been uh, anniversaries, as you mentioned. There was the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. Um, uh, and uh, of course we have the dedication of the Eisenhower Memorial uh, in just a few days. Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, it was only a few months ago that we marked the 50th anniversary of Eisenhower's death. Um, right. well. um, and so these are times when I think we are uh, reminded of, uh, uh, of the importance of learning from uh, great leaders uh, like Dwight Eisenhower, a uh, great statesman um, who has left a legacy that, uh, that we still benefit from uh, today. So, uh, I want to thank you for your uh, service as a trustee of AICGS, uh, but also, um, more importantly, uh, this contribution to, uh, to our understanding of, of uh, President Eisenhower. And uh, thank you for being with us. Well, Jeff, I just want to take this moment to thank you for the opportunity to talk about this book today and just to say uh, what an extraordinary job uh, you do at AICGS uh, the wonderful, uh, in the wonderful tradition of Jack Janes and Stephen, Stephen uh, Muller, who I, I knew through my uncle Milton. And it, I mean, you have tracked over these years this remarkable transformation, um, not only in contemporary German affairs as they evolved over the years since your founding, but uh, 
today we are in an extraordinary situation. Um, and our, I would go as far as to say the state of our relations with um, our European friends is absolutely crucial. And so it's an honor for me to uh, be part of this organization. And thank you again for this opportunity today. Well, and I want to thank all of our listeners out there for joining us. And uh, we have been delighted to talk with Susan Eisenhower today. And we will look forward to having all of you with us on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören!